ourselves. Speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Reveal your son, Jesus Christ, to us and our need for him. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As a child, I would often hear stories um, read to me. And I can still remember, even now, how those stories would go. You would begin the, the, the story by hearing, once upon a time, in the beginning, in a land far, far away. And then you would hear the plot of the story. And at the end of the story, most of the time in children's stories, you would hear, and they all lived happily ever after. They all lived happily ever after. Now, something within me didn't quite get that as a child. I knew that there, there wasn't, that something just wasn't right with that. I knew there was a tension with that statement because not every person's reality was like that. And yet that was the plot of the story. That was the scheme of the story. Once upon a time, then the plot, and they all lived happily ever after. What happens when the phrase, they all lived happily ever after, invades our psyche? What happens when the phrase from childhood to adulthood, they all lived happily ever after, becomes the tag phrase of our expectations for life? And then what happens when we discover in life that our stories, they don't always end happily ever after? How do we deal with the disappointment, the frustration? And how do we resolve the conflict of what has been said and, and told to us in, in children's books with the reality of our lives? For many of us, whether we realize it or not, we, we bring our happily ever after mindset into our Christian journey. And so as we interact with God, as we have expectations about God, our general expectation is that when it's all said and done, we say, God, I lived happily ever after. Even though our various experiences, day after day, month after month, year after year, are contrary, we somehow still hold the expectation that it's going to end happily ever after. And the question I want to ask you this morning is when it doesn't, are you bold enough? Are you honest enough to raise the question and ask, what happened, God? What's wrong, God? Why didn't my story end happily ever after? Let me show you my hand at the start of this, this sermon. You don't have to wonder where we're going. The end of the story for John the Baptist is that he's beheaded. That's the end of the story for John. There's no happily ever after rescue from prison for John. And yet John, in Matthew 11, 
verses 1 to 19, provides this marvelous gift for us. He provides the gift of being honest about his own experience, being honest about his own struggles, being honest with his own doubts. John the Baptist models for us what it looks like to deal with doubt. Look again at Matthew 11. Jesus, he's interacting with his disciples and he's doing great ministry. He's proclaiming the the, the kingdom to people in various towns and villages. And John the Baptist is in prison. And he's been in prison for declaring the truth. He's told the king, you're wrong for marrying your brother's wife. It's It's not right, you shouldn't have done that. And for that righteous, bold proclamation, John is tossed into prison. And while he's he's in prison, some would suggest six months, maybe even up to two years, he takes a moment, he gathers his disciples, and he says, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go to Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the one, the promised Messiah? Or should we begin to look for another John gathered his disciples, his students, and he sent them to raise this bold yet important question. We just want to know. Jesus, I just want to know, are you the Messiah or not? And this is really interesting because when you consider it's John the Baptist, okay, It's John the Baptist, the one who is the cousin of Jesus, the one who who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary walked into the room. It's this John, this John who is the preparer of the way. It's this John who declared it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's this John that baptized Jesus in the river. It's this John who's pointing his disciples to follow Jesus. John the Baptist, of all people, out in the wilderness proclaiming repentance, the kingdom is here, this John sends his disciples to ask the question, Jesus, are you the one or should we begin to look for another? John in this moment acknowledges that maybe just maybe, I have doubt. Maybe because of his circumstances. Maybe because he's in prison and it's gotten the best of him. Maybe because he's used to being out in the wilderness. He's, he's used to being free. And now he's confined. And maybe he's, he's wondering, what is the outcome going to be for me? And he said, I just want to be sure And so he sends his disciples with this question. Are you the one or should we begin to look for another? John the Baptist gives evidence of having doubt. And if John has doubt, maybe you and I sometimes have doubt. If John the Baptist, the preparer of the way, the great prophet that goes before the Messiah if he can have a moment where he questions the identity of Jesus, where he questions the larger plan of God, maybe you and I likewise have moments where we doubt. 
where we ask, God, are you really who you say you are? Jesus, are you really who you proclaim yourself to be? We question. We wonder. We doubt. And I would encourage those of you who, who struggle to hear this, who struggle to hear that maybe some people around you struggle with doubt, I would encourage you that before you judge, and maybe even con- condemn and determine that th- those people don't have a solid faith, to, to just consider the Scriptures. Because as you consider the Scriptures, you see a number of people who wrestle with God, who have many doubts, and yet they believe. See, the thing with doubt is that it doesn't mean we don't believe. It means we're struggling. And we need our our faith to be affirmed and strengthened. See, if you just wrestle with the Scriptures, you see people who doubted. Father Abraham, it's like, come on, God. What age am I? Me and Sarah, we gonna have a child? Sarah, didn't she laugh at God? Gideon, the great warrior, didn't he have doubts when God said he was going to raise him up to be a deliverer? Wasn't it Gideon, the fleece test? Dry, then wet, wet, and then dry. Wasn't that Gideon? What about the disciples? What does Jesus say to them over and over again? Oh, you of little faith. Wasn't it Thomas who said, I won't believe unless I touch him with my own hands? Over and over in Scripture, people who are willing to acknowledge they struggle periodically with doubt. They wonder, is God going to do all that he says he would do? Is Jesus really is the person he claims to be? They doubt. And if John the Baptist can have doubts, if people in Scripture can have doubts, then maybe you and I can have doubts as well. The question I want to ask is, what do you do with your doubts? What do you do with your doubts? Where do you take your doubts to? Or who do you take your doubts to? One of the things we see from this passage is that when John the Baptist has doubts, he sends his disciples to Jesus. John says, I have the question, but the only person, the only person that can answer the question is Jesus. And so he says, disciples, I need you to ask him. Go and ask him. When you have doubts, when you waver in your faith, when you're struggling, where do you take your doubts to? Who do you take your doubts to? Do you keep them to yourself? Do you hide them away, hoping that one day they will eventually go away? Or do you have the boldness to be honest with God, to say, God, I'm struggling? Where do you take your doubt to? John the Baptist took his doubt to the only person that could deal with them. 
he took them to Jesus. Now, I'll be honest, when I read this passage, I wasn't sure what to make of Jesus' reply. I celebrate the fact, I think we should celebrate the fact that Jesus doesn't condemn John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, how dare John the Baptist? You know, after all I've done for John the Baptist, how dare he? How dare he ask this question? No, Jesus doesn't condemn him. He doesn't shun him. He embraces his question. But at the same time, Jesus does not give John a direct answer. Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, remind John of what he has read in the scriptures. Like Isaiah 35, that's what's being quoted here about the Messiah who is at work. He says, go and tell him that that is what I am doing. I'm the Messiah and I'm at work. Now here's the thing, Jesus could have said, yes. Could have said, yes, I'm the Messiah. Case settled. But he doesn't. He lifts up the scriptures. He lifts up the scriptures before John and he says, John, when you're struggling, when you're wavering, when you're doubting, I need you to reflect upon the scriptures. Jesus lifts up the scriptures and he says to John's disciples, go and tell him that. But here's the thing, if we know our Bibles well at all, if we know Isaiah at all, then we might have a problem with what Jesus has said and quoted. Because what's interesting about Isaiah is that Isaiah in Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2, it talks about a Messiah who will set the captives free. And so John, he's in prison. And so what you would expect Jesus to say is that, yes, John, setting the captives free from prison, it's part of my ministry. But Jesus doesn't include that in his message to John. Jesus doesn't say that at all. I want to suggest that that, that whether we acknowledge it or not, we will have doubts. And when we have doubts, Jesus doesn't always answer us the way we want him to. Jesus may not always answer our questions the way we expect Yes, we'll we'll have concerns, a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions. But Jesus doesn't always give the answer we want. What Jesus does instead is he challenges us that even though we may be struggling, we may be wavering to cling to the truth that we already have. Now, after... Jesus gives this message. The disciples of John the Baptist, they they leave. They they go and share exactly what Jesus has said. But once these disciples of John leave, Jesus then begins to affirm the ministry of John the Baptist. 
Look at what he does in, in the passage. He commends John's ministry. He commends him for the ministry of preparing the way, for being the great representative of God who would proclaim that the Messiah is coming. He celebrates him. He celebrates his greatness in light of God's larger kingdom program. And he says that there's none greater than John the Baptist. The work he's been able to do, it's absolutely astonishing. He lifts him up. But then he contextualizes his ministry. He says that even though John has done all that he's done, and even though he's great in the eyesight of God, please understand this. It's not about John. It's about God. It's about God's plan, God's program, and God's agenda. And in God's agenda, those who will come after John, those who will be a part of the kingdom, who will embrace the gospel, even the least of them will be greater than John the Baptist. He contextualizes the ministry of John the Baptist so that those who were listening, who may have been wondering, why did John ask Jesus that question? Should we have followed John at all? Should we have listened to John in the first place? See, Jesus, in affirming the ministry of John the Baptist, helps now to settle the questions of the people. And in doing so, he makes it very clear that it's not about John. It's never been about John. It's always been about God, about his plan and his kingdom. And in reminding them of, of his purpose, of Jesus' purpose for coming to earth, he invites the people to respond by embracing the kingdom. You see that in verses 12 and 15. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, it's about my kingdom. And he said, here's the thing with my kingdom. You cannot take it and sleep. You cannot be indifferent about my kingdom. You must embrace the kingdom like John, a man of vigor. The violent take it by force. The kingdom has been taken violently by force. That's what we read in verse 12. See, this kingdom is not something that we can be blasé or empathetic about. The kingdom must be embraced. And I want to encourage you this morning, in the same way that Jesus did with those people, by saying, come to him this morning. Come to Jesus this morning. Do you know, if you have been in our Matthew series uh, at all, you must realize that, that, that Jesus and his kingdom, it's, it's, it's incredible. Jesus, we've seen and we've heard time and time again that he has authority over all things. He's powerful over sin, sickness, death, disease, evil. And he invites us to follow him, to live under this all-powerful kingship. And he tells us to advance his kingdom, to ultimately live in a way that pleases our Father in heaven. 
but he not only invites us to follow him, to live for him, but he gives us everything we need. He gives us himself. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin so that we might be able to live in a way that pleases him. And when he rose from the dead, he gave us power so that even in the hard times, even when suffering comes, we might have grace that's not only present, but sufficient for us to keep going. Jesus invites you to come. And as he invites you to come to him, he says, when you embrace my kingdom, you won't be like those who stand by and criticize, who make excuses, complaining about the messenger. That's what he's getting at in verses 16 to 19. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus says, when it comes to embracing the kingdom, this generation is like children who can't agree on what game they're going to play. You can't agree on whether you're going to play a wedding or funeral. John comes, he's austere, he's a man of courage, he's not a buddy-buddy kind of guy. He abstains totally from alcohol, he eats weird food, he wears really weird clothes, and he comes and he, he proclaims judgment, condemnation, repentance. What do you say about him? He's so mean. He's such a mean-spirited man. He's not nice, he's not warm. They accuse him of being demon-possessed. The Lord Jesus comes. He says, I dwell among sinners. I don't abstain from alcohol. I don't abstain from, from foods that John abstained from. I gather with those who, who are sinners, unbelievers. I get close to them. I, I do life for them. I share the word with them. What do you say about me? I'm a glutton, drunkard, hang out with sinners, liberal. I do it one way for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says you criticize me. John does it another way. You criticize him. You're like children who can't decide on which game to play. Jesus says when you embrace my kingdom, you're not like those who make excuses. You're not like those who play games. Well, the Lord Jesus closes with these awesome words. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He's saying to those who both who criticize both Jesus and John, says, look, our ministries will be vindicated by our spiritual results. As we have both proclaimed salvation by, by, by grace through faith, the people who come to Christ will vindicate will prove the faithfulness of our ministries. Maybe you're here this morning and you're making excuses. 
You don't want to embrace this kingdom that you hear about every Sunday. And maybe you're, you're treating the kingdom like I sometimes treat the washing. Rachel says, Alex, put on a load of washing for me. I say, sorry, won't have time today. So busy, ministry. Will you be in the house for, for five minutes? Yes, but you know, I'll be tired. Please. Ah, uh, be too scared of mixing colors. Wouldn't want wouldn't to do that. Now, apart from being a terrible husband, and you shouldn't do that, some of us could be treating Jesus. Jesus, the God of the universe, the same way that I treat the washing. I want to plead with you this morning to stop playing, to embrace the kingdom of God, to embrace the king. As we conclude, I want us to go back to where we started. What happens to John? He's beheaded. He's beheaded. But he's beheaded knowing that the word of God and the promises of God are enough. I don't know about you this morning, but I just want us to consider that as we deal with our doubts, are we willing to lose our heads and still cling to the gospel? Are we willing to lose our heads and still cling to the promises of God? Are we willing to endure suffering and heartache and persecution which is common for all who will live a godly life? Are we willing to be hated because Jesus says, when you follow me, they hated me, they're gonna hate you too. And not think it's strange, but to think this is the scriptures being fulfilled. Are we willing to be beheaded and still cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ? One of my favorite songs is the song, It Is Well With My Soul. The reason I, I love this song is because of the meaning behind it. Horatio Spafford, uh, the guy who wrote this song, he was a successful lawyer in Chicago in the 1800s. And he and his family had experienced pain and suffering. They'd lost the, their first child to pneumonia. Um, their business, they lost their business um, in the Great Fire. And they were rebuilding their lives. They were getting things back on track. And in the midst of getting things back on track and rebuilding their lives, they decided to take a trip across the Atlantic. Horatio Spafford, he, he was working so he couldn't go, but, but the rest of his family went, his wife and, and his kids. And as the family traveled across the Atlantic, four days into the trip, they hit another vessel. And 276 out of the 300 people on that ship didn't make it. Spafford's wife was, was one of the only ones to be rescued. And after being rescued, she had the opportunity to write to her husband. And he got on a ship that his, his wife and his children had been on. 
And while he was traveling across the sea to, to be with his wife, to, to comfort her, to console her, they came across the, the, the same path that his wife and his, and his children had been on. And one of the captains said to him, this is the area. This is the area. Horatio Spafford looked out and he penned this song that many of us have, have embraced, have heard, have even cried to. He penned the song, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I pray that as we deal with our doubts, as we deal with our struggles, as we raise our questions to God, the times when, when Jesus doesn't answer us the way we want him to do so, when he doesn't give us the, the answers, when he doesn't show up in the ways that we want him to show up, when he only gives us himself, his word and his promises, I pray that we will just rest in him, that we will rest in his promises, that we will rest in all that we've been given in Christ and to declare it is well. It is well with my soul. I still have questions. I still have doubts. But the one thing I resolve to do is to cling to Jesus, is to cling to the gospel and his promises. Let's pray.